0: This week we're talking about the rare breeds sadly getting ever rarer.
1: In the late 60s there were just a few remnants of farm livestock breeds like the Norfolk Horn, another one of our East Anglian sheep breeds that were just... Literally were
2: a few remaining examples of the breed.
0: And as it's officially Love Lamb Week, we're talking, well, about lambs.
2: Think you through, when we go shopping, let's look at the labels, let's look to see where has this been produced, um, so that we are really supporting our British farmers. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale.
0: Good morning. We start this week with a look back at last week's programme. You might remember we were chatting with Tim Lammiman on his combine, attempting to break a record or two. Well, maybe I was the jinx because he didn't with wheat when I was with him. But this week, when I wasn't there, he did set a new pea yield record. 6.47 tonnes per hectare with an average moisture of 15.35% previous world record for combined peas in europe was 5.21 tonnes per hectare and uh, that was for a crop in ireland well here's a reminder as to how tim consistently is getting such high yields um, it's like everything else everybody has their own land type and their own way and it's, it's overturning every part of your system and, and looking it over and, and trying to identify where the weaknesses are and strengthening up those weaknesses and that's the only way we've took the yields to where we are uh, right from nutrition um, you know, using some fancy bio nature products which produce tillering and stem strength to even seed rates, drilling depths, uh, level seed beds. There's every single element we look at to try and push the yields higher. Uh, so unless you've turned every stone. Uh, as bit of a pun from this place unless you've overturned every single stone um, you will not get those high yields and it's a lot, it's a lot of science isn't it right really? oh yes yeah yeah we, we play with an awful lot of science on here to take it to where it is uh to almost the art form in nutrition now we, we try to not let the plumbing plant suffer any nutrition whatsoever if we can if we can help it a tip or two maybe for you uh tim lammerman there well done to him on that uh, record p yield Now at many of our summer shows this year you may well have seen the team from the Rare Breed Survival Trust. Promoting the trust is crucial to its survival and of course if it survives the rare breeds are more likely to survive as well. Gail Spake has been chatting with Ellie Codling about the trust's work. The Rare Breed Survival
1: Trust is the only national charity that's actually looking after rare endangered native breeds of farm livestock so we have 25 sheep breeds on what is our watch list and but it's not just sheep, it's cattle, it's equines as well, ponies and working horses, it's poultry breeds, it's pigs um, and it's goats. So we have currently over 60 breeds on that watch list. Um, Sticking with sheep just for a little while of the 25 breeds, the sheep breeds on the whole are showing signs of improvement and certainly our rarest breed of sheep, the borrarae, has moved up a classification now because the numbers are increasing. And each of our breeds of sheep actually has a dedicated band of followers who are ensuring that the animals continue to survive and increase. Equines are sadly not in the same situation because firstly, putting it bluntly, one doesn't eat horse meat so there has got to be other uses Mm -hmm. for horses and some of them it isn't just a case of fashion but if we take the hackney horse and pony for example they were bred for a particular cause, the hackney um, cab in London Um, but the use there ceases to exist. Um, Hackneys in fact are They have a a very strong breeders group uh, and group of supporters, so perhaps they're doing better than some of the others, but what we have seen here today, we're in Suffolk, the Suffolk horse, our native breed of um, horse, um, is struggling for survival um, because really if anyone wants to support the calls we say join us as a member if you have a business think about joining us as a corporate member you can find all the details on the website rbst.org.uk but look at all of those breeds and the people who keep the horse breeds you know need not just the land and obviously a disposable income because it's not a a cheap activity and you also need the experience and the knowledge because those, those animals are mighty animals, but you need a great deal of experience and knowledge with them. So the equine breeds are struggling, but I think most of all are the pig breeds because at the moment a great number of our pig breeds are in decline. A lot of people are not registering their animals which means that we can only count um, for numbers of um, females those animals that are actually registered with the breed societies there may be a whole lot more out there that are for example Gloucestershire old spot or British saddleback but unless the breeders actually register those animals we can't count them within the the number of females and the other issue with the pigs is that at the moment there's no money in pigs but um also a lot of the pig breeds are the herds are kept by a small number of breeders. We had one pig breeder a couple of years back who had a fire on the farm and we lost 10% of the genetics of the entire breed simply because he had a significant number in his herd. So There's a lot of challenges facing us. Having said that, we are not downhearted because we are a positive um, charity. We have a lot of support at the moment. Um, Our president Jimmy Doherty, again an Ipswich boy from Jimmy's farm, who probably you know um, is our president he's actually coming to the Royal Norfolk show to support us um, he is as you know a breeder of pigs um, and he is promoting the breed for us and you know the charity in a great way we also have his Royal Highness the Prince of Wales who is our patron who's also a very strong supporter We have a very strong membership base. We're always looking for new members, obviously, but I have a a good team in the office and a good team of trustees on the board. So, you know, things are positive, um, and it's work in progress. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, like you say, there's 60 breeds across the UK that are struggling, but the support is there, and I guess awareness helps people to realise it you know Adam's farm on Countryfile he's a big supporter of rare breeds as well isn't it so all things like that. Well, it was Adam's dad, Joe Henson, who passed away last year. Who was actually the founder chairman of the Reverie Survival Trust um, in 19 or in the late 60s. There were just a few remnants of farm livestock breeds, like the Norfolk Horn, another one of our East Anglian sheep breeds, that were just literally were a few remaining examples of the breed, and they were tucked away in Whipsnade Zoo because nobody really knew what to do with them. But they also knew that you don't just leave them there to die out because with all these breeds, once they've gone, they've gone you cannot get their genetics back and recreate them, certainly not in the 60s so um, a bunch of forward thinking conservationists, when conservation wasn't trendy in the late 60s um, Joe Henson was one of the steers of that group and they formed the Rare Breed Survival Trust and came into being in 1973 so Joe was the founder chairman I have very big shoes to fill, I'm currently chairman and um You know, it has been in action and been working very hard to keep these breeds going. Uh, We have, I have to say, from 1900 to 1973 we lost 26 breeds of farm livestock. Those are the only ones that we know about. Um, Sheeted cattle, Lincolnshire curly coated pig. You can Google them these days, you can find them in the history books but you won't find them in farmyards and the genetics have gone forever. Since the charity was formed in 73 we haven't lost a single breed of farm livestock. But that doesn't mean to say the job is done. You know, We've got to raise awareness. I suppose the one message we are now trying to get out, because we monitor the breeds, we must save the breeds, but we've got to promote them. And we've got to try and tell the housewife that perhaps when you go to the butcher's, ask what that piece of lamb is or that piece of beef is. Ask the butcher what the breed is, where it came from, because if we as consumers are asking, the butcher's going to want to know. He's going to want to increase his business. And if it's a registered Norfolk horn leg of lamb, or if it's a piece of Galloway beef, or, for example, you know, sausages from Gloucestershire old spots. Then that butcher's going to want to get those registered animals, and if they're asking for more, my breeders are going to be wanting mm. to breed more, mm. and the whole thing then becomes far more positive. Yeah. So I would say, you know, ask what you're eating, and it might cost a bit more. So maybe buy a bit, eat a bit less but buy better.
0: Gail Spake there of the Rare Breed Survival Trust chatting with Ellie Codling. You can find out more about the Trust on their website. It's rbst.org.uk. On to agronomy then. Sean Sparling has the latest from Sparling Agronomy Services. Sean, the uh, issue over rare breeds, an interesting one for all of us, really, isn't it? Yes,
3: good morning, Sean. Well, as you know, I do the commentary on the livestock at the Lincolnshire show, the Grand Parade of Livestock, and I've been saying in my commentary for a number of years that if ever you go into a restaurant and you see rare breed on the menu, whether it be pork or beef or lamb or chicken or duck or goose or whatever it is order it because it may seem bizarre but the way we preserve rare breeds is to give demand to the producers. So the more we eat, the more demand there is, therefore the more the breed is secure because the, the more they will keep producing it to get it into that marketplace. And I guarantee you it tastes really, really good so it's well worth a punt. Right, let's start with this year's crop, oilseed rape, and then we'll go back to crops which are still in the field from last year, namely uh, spring beans and sugar beet and potatoes. So oilseed rape, two pests causes a few heads to be scratched at the moment cabbage stem flea beetle and slugs let's start with slugs You have restrictions on metaldehyde, as you know. 7 kilos of a 3% product, so 210 grams of active material metaldehyde between the 1st of August and 31st of December every year. Therefore, if you're going with a 1.5% product instead of a 3% product, you can put 14 kilos of metaldehyde slug pellets on. And it's bait points which are the key. You want the bait points down there so the slugs find them. But don't just blanket spread everything, just because you're on sluggy land, you think it looks a bit rough, make sure you've got a problem before you go and do it. Um, And also remember, metaldehyde cannot be applied. has a 10-metre buffer zone now around the outside near watercourses. My advice would be to use ferrous phosphate all the way around, all your headlands, and just use ferrous phosphate at that point. Because it's, it's easier to do that than try and calibrate to 10 metres and then mess about with the rest of it. They work just as well. The difference is you don't tend to see the dead slugs because they go away and die rather than die on the surface. But they do work very, very well. Now, I believe it's wrong that ferrous phosphate, which is only toxic to slugs and snails should be three times as expensive as metaldehyde. It just doesn't seem right to me that in this industry, the safer product, the best environmental profile product, should be three times as expensive. And I think that needs addressing by this industry because it's just not right. So get your slug pellet traps out. Remember, they don't tunnel through the ground like uh, worms do. They rely upon you to leave fields rough with gaps and hollers and, and clods. So if you've got those sorts of fields, slug traps out and monitor them every single day twice a day don't just spread slug pellets for the sake of doing it they cost money and it's not particularly good for things like ground beetles which are actually your friend and helping you against the slugs anyway and the other pest is cabbage stem flea beetle and remember there is cabbage stem flea beetle the rate of lambda cyhalothrin for that is 50 millilitres per hectare there's also flea beetle and that generally doesn't happen until the spring and flea beetle control rate is 75 mils a hectare. So for goodness sake, make sure your agronomist understands the difference between the two and that your paperwork is correct because you can't put 75 mil a hallmark or lambda cyhalithrin on to control cabbage stem flea beetle. Um, They are active. Your threshold for damage is 25% of plants affected in the field and again, constant monitoring is the key. Blanket spraying is not the answer because we're so limited now, we have pyrethroids left to control them. The more we spray, the more quickly they're going to become resistant the more problems we're going to have because we don't have the neonicotinoid seed dressings anymore to bail us out and help us so constant monitoring and for goodness sake don't keep spraying the same damage if you've got damaged cotyledons check the new leaves if they're coming out unharmed then you know you're doing the job with the insecticide that you've already applied so speak to your agronomist make sure you're going in the correct conditions if it's hot you don't want to be applying it as an insecticide because the cabbage stem flea beetle will be hiding in the hollows and under stones and rocks and clods in the field and it is contact only it is not vapor activity it isn't residual it will only kill them if they're there so on a hot day you're better to go in the middle of the night because they're largely nocturnal if on it's a dull day a cool day you'll be fine to go within daylight hours but just monitor it don't just walk away for 10 days and then go back because you may well find you've lost it look at it once a day twice a day in between agronomy visits and if in doubt give him a shout um, and then we move on to spring beans which are causing a lot of issues this year because we have two or three crops in every field we've got the crop that emerged within three or four days of drilling we've got the crop that emerged seven to ten days after drilling as normal and then we've got that other crop which emerged about six weeks after drilling when the drought broke so these fields are all over the place two rules of thumb if you're using diquat as a desiccant then you can go in at 45% moisture or less, it kills what it touches, it's not translocated and it will crisp everything off and even things up very very quickly. If you are using glyphosate you have to have 30% moisture and the reason for that is once you've got 30% moisture or less the crop is physiologically ripe and the translocated product which is glyphosate can therefore not translocate through pods and touch the, the beans themselves and that's what we want. We don't want high residue levels of glyphosate showing up in beans so if in doubt again get your agronomist out to have a look go with the majority of the field. Um, and make your decision. You're probably better with glyphosate if you've got cooch or seedling blackgrass coming through underneath, but for goodness sake, make sure your moisture content is correct. Sugar beet, second fungicide, is largely upon us. I don't know when it happened. Eight years ago, one fungicide was enough. Five years ago, we were all wrong unless we were doing two, and now it seems three is the key. British Sugar want as much sugar as you can produce them. It stands to reason they're going to advise you to keep putting fungicides on to uh, maximise the sugar output. Speak to your agronomist, leave five weeks, about five weeks between each fungicide. Remember the magnesium deficiency, bitter salts chucked in five kilos will deal with that. There's a lot of it about. And also, for goodness sake, make sure you're correct with your harvest intervals, particularly if you're going to be lifting over the course of the next few weeks. And finally, potatoes, don't forget that late blight is called late blight for a reason. Even if you're spraying off fields, keep up, maintain. Something like fluazinam thrown in will help kill any blight spores which are indeed about because it is still very very thundery. So we're off again. We've still got last year's crop in the ground. This year's crops are already causing headaches and it's only been in there a week. So uh, happy days.
0: Happy days indeed. Thank you Sean Sparling. We're talking Love Lamb week in a moment. First let's get the latest from Open Field and it's Chris Spratt with the news this week. Good morning Sean.
4: How are things then at your end? Uh,
0: yeah, getting uh,
4: hectic now although <laughs> harvest is out the way, now's the time for us to us lads to and ladies rather to get samplers out there and um, start analysing what we've got and trying to make some sense of the job Um, and you know the market still keeps going on uh, of course that doesn't stop for for, for that Uh, UK market's really fallen about £10 over the month I suppose despite uh, weaker sterling Um, a lot of this as we've talked about before is down to the Russian wheat crop you know that's been the catalyst for for decline I think uh, across Europe uh, many analysts now, they're saying that the Russians could well have up to uh, or over 80 million tons. That will obviously add to the 17, 18 stocks' new record levels, which I think will be about to be set. Um, and, and also what we've seen on the back of that, of course, is some of the investment funds, the managed funds. They've been in there uh, looking to sell on both the Chicago and the uh, and the French markets and push them to new contract lows. But, you know, we have to take into account it will take a bit of a logistical miracle for Russia to be able to export in excess of 30 million tonnes in a season, which is what they'll need to do. And just to put that into perspective, that's probably about twice the UK crop. Um, And that's even if they get a a mild winter that will aid their logistics. Uh, Otherwise, anything above that will just really add to their stocks. Um, there's already reports in Russia of, of three weeks waiting times for ships uh, to be loaded. Farmers unhappy with the lower prices there, and of course, you know, with a bigger crop, you have to get it from, you know, from the farm in, into the ports. And rail cars uh, will be at a premium. That situation's bound to get worse as they go further afield to source the source the supply. And of course, you know, we don't know about the Russian winter yet. That could well restrict movement. So, you know, there's uh, it's quite topical at the moment, really. I would say. Australia, well, they've had some rains, but the forecast is still for them to be 10 million tonnes down on last season, and Canada's figures, uh, the latest figures they came out with this week, put their crop down at 19.5%, which is about just over 6 million tonnes on last year, um, and at that, if you couple that with a smaller US wheat crop, that will reduce the availability of, of quality wheats on a, on a, on a worldwide scale. Um I think also this will be compounded by the lower quality wheat in Germany and the Baltic wheat crops as well. They've suffered from poor harvest conditions. So it's not just the UK where we've had a catchy harvest. Um, and I think that will amount uh, add to the amount of feed grains within the EU. Um, hopefully that will displace some of the imported uh, alternatives, particularly maize. As far as pricing within the EU's concerned, most growers now are looking um, at below the cost of production. So, you know, selling has really been at a minimum. UK harvest, well that's still ongoing, we're gradually getting that tidied up now, but uh, reports on yields are are very variable, and there's variable quality out there as well. I think that on paper there's enough to fulfil the miller's needs, but in my own mind I think the premium might need to improve a little bit, dependent on the quality of outturn. Uh, There's a lot of milling wheat out there that will do a job, but by the time you net off for allowances and everything else, well... That's what you've got to look at. It's, it's what's it what is what it, it hits the bank that matters. UK supply and demand, well, as we've said before, that's potentially going to be tight. That could support prices as we go throughout the season. Most growers already had a reasonable sell. And um you know, having witnessed the, the decline in values that we've seen recently, I think they're unlikely to p- press the panic button yet. On Thursday, DEFRA released their ending stock figures, uh with wheat stocks forty-eight per cent lower and barley 33% lower compared to last year. You know that has given a bit of support to the market, but don't forget that we had a very big carryover from the previous year harvest, and that had depressed prices. The feed barley discount to feed wheat has narrowed again to nearer 10 pound. Uh, Weak sterling, both against the euro and the dollar, has resulted in export trade program taking place, especially to Spain. And we've talked about them before being, you know, four or five million tons down on their uh, crops from last year. And global um, feed barley supply and demand is tight. Australia and Canada likely to have reduced crops. Uh, So, all in all, um, better values on barley. Global feed demand for uh, barley, well, they're trading above some milling wheat grades on the world market, so quite encouraging, really. Domestic consumers will probably reduce their barley usage, now the spread between wheat and barley has narrowed, um, so that might still give us a little bit more to do on the export front, as far as that's concerned. Maltsters, well, they're still sat back evaluating the crop. As with milling wheat, there's been significant losses of quality and availability south of the M5, and that's tightened up the market, improved prices. Uh, On the face of it, mosters are relaxed, they're waiting for the arrival of existing pre-harvest purchases before making any significant moves. But it is a fairly strong market, and certainly, I think as far as quality is concerned, I would ask all growers out there of malting barley to make sure they look after their product this season. Uh, A lot of it's gone into store wet please don't just shut the door and go off uh, after harvest and go drilling rape because you'll probably come back and find the germination has gone and you've got a heap of feed barley which could cost in the region of 40 to 50 pound this season. And we are seeing some movement of the germ already in some of these barley's and uh, you know if you don't get that barley dry uh, now uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be difficult work I think. All seed rape currency uh, currency's really been in the driving seat harvest almost complete really and now it's down to crushers trying to tempt sellers out of the woodwork. Uh, And they also will be keeping an eye on the export market, trying to keep all seed rape in the country. The market's traded in a narrow range throughout the week, really, and and the emphasis has gone off that now we've got out of harvest. We are starting to see a few samples of beans coming through, mainly high brookid, with very few in the way of uh, human consumption quality at the moment. With that in mind, you would think you would find uh, that a decent sample would be worth a bit more than the £15 being quoted. Truth is, at the moment, there's very little export on the books for the better quality. North Africa still using Australian old crop beans and the Baltic states, which were our main competitor last season, are similar to us in that they need to see the bulk of the crop before offering anything to the market. So stalemate for the time being. As far as price is concerned, feed wheat for September 133 to 136 with November 135 to 138 with a pound a month carry. Looking ahead, November 2018, £140 ex-farm. And then the milling wheat premium, well that's £13 to £16 at the moment. Uh, There is plenty of demand for soft wheat with the right spec out there and premiums for low grade, group 1s and 2s and group 4 hards. So really a matter of getting your samples in, uh, analysing what you've got and then going from there. We certainly are seeing a a little bit higher levels of microtoxin don than we've seen for a few years. Um, So, you know, there's lots of things in the mix really as far as the quality is concerned. Feed barley for September, £120 with November at £122. Oilseed Rape, 322 to 325 for September, with November, 325 to 327. And finally, Fiend Beans, uh, £150 for September.
0: Thank you. Chris Spratt from Open Field. Friday just gone, September the 1st, saw the launch of Love Lamb Week. So good, it actually lasts 10 days, but that's beside the point. Uh, a new study has claimed this week that uh, a majority of Brits do make an effort to buy fresh food that's in season. Although quite a few don't fully understand just what is in season and when. Let's chat with uh, Elwyn Roberts. Uh, she's an author, chef, home economist and passionate about Love Lamb Week. Uh,
2: what's it all about, Elwyn? It's so just an opportunity to celebrate all things lamb, really. You know, because we've got this amazing product on our doorsteps. It's at the peak of the season. So that's what it's all about.
0: I'm staggered by this research. You know, 75% of Brits... Uh, saying that they uh, make an effort to buy fresh food that's in season which is, uh, which is good news but many seem confused as to what's in season when
2: Yes, I think, you know, we got used to seeing all this product available on our shelves all year round, really. You know, for me, it's like crazy that we're buying strawberries at Christmas, that sort of thing, because they're not really in season. Same with lamb, you know, you can get it all year round, but we really need to think when is it peak in season. So I think there's just so much confusion for consumers, really.
0: And, of course, by buying in season, we are supporting British farmers as well, aren't we?
2: Well, of course. Yes, of course. You know, it makes environmentally sense as well, economical sense. Eating seasonally, of course, you know, is going to increase the demand as well. If we demand that we want a lot more of these on our shelves when it's in season, we're supporting the local economy and, more than anything, supporting our farmers.
0: Going back to that survey, do you you find that... um, More people are trying to find British produce nowadays and and would like to make a complete meal of British produce, but it's not always that easy.
2: Yes, yes, indeed. I think that, you know, like we said at the beginning, you know, 75% of Brits say they make the effort. So I think the intention is there. Um, So that is great. And I think we just need to really think it through. When we go shopping, let's look at the labels. Let's look to see where has this been produced um, so that we are really supporting our British farmers.
0: So Love Lamb Week, then the aim obviously is to promote uh, lamb it's 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 in one way it's a versatile meat isn't it
2: oh incredibly versatile you know I think some people especially the younger generation maybe think it's a bit difficult to cook but you know you can't go wrong with it Um, I'm just thinking now well you can do a meal within a matter of minutes you know what about something like using some lovely leg steaks or something chopping them up with these vegetables we've just been talking about to make an amazing stir fry just a dash of soy sauce or something to finish it off it's very very versatile and so easy to cook and you've got such a range of cuts you know from slow through to our very quick um sort of cuts available
0: elwyn roberts there she's uh, got my mouth watering i don't know about yours it's a bit early for lamb at the moment anyway uh, let's move on let's see what the uh, weather has in store for us this week the farming program five-day forecast Well, today's quite uh, overcast, should be dry, maybe a shower in places. Highs of 20 Celsius, the wind from the south at 15 miles an hour. Staying cloudy overnight tonight, temperatures down to 12, the wind more from the southeast. At about 5 miles an hour, maybe gusting up to 20. Same for tomorrow as well with the wind. And uh, staying much the same tomorrow as well with uh, patchy cloud, maybe a shower in the afternoon. 21 the high for Monday. Monday into Tuesday stays cloudy once again. A little bit warmer. Uh, 14 will be the overnight low. First thing on Tuesday morning, the wind from the southwest, 10, gusting at 20 miles an hour. And then through Tuesday itself, it's cloudy with some rain to come by the evening. 21, the high. The wind again from the southwest at about 10 miles an hour. Some particularly heavy rain forecast first thing on Wednesday morning at the moment. It can change, but at the moment it does look like it could be some heavy rain for a time. 16, the low, the wind from the southwest, again 10 miles an hour. And then sunny spells once that uh, rain has passed over through Wednesday itself. 19, the high, and the wind blowing more from the north at about 15 miles an hour. And then for the uh, latter end of the week, we've got more of a westerly breeze. Should be some sunny spells, though it will be quite cloudy in places. Highs, early 20s, with overnight lows in their mid teens. And that's the forecast, and another week in the world of agriculture. It is September. Enjoy Love Lamb Week. Have a good week's farming.